Hi there. It's great to be with you as part of our Invited series. And what we're doing is looking together at God's desire for a diverse church from all over the world, from every nation, being invited to God's table and what it looks like for us here to build a diverse community based on the principles we've seen in the Bible. And what happened is last week, Steve began the series by sharing a bit of the story of the church, the story of kings, and talking about some of his own diversity stories, if you like, and ours corporately as well. And then he went to Acts chapter 8, and he drew out five lessons for us on inviting people cross-culturally into the kingdom of God. Lessons on diversity and crossing over into other people's worlds. And this week, we're going to be in Acts again. We're going to be in Acts chapter 13. And we're going to start at Acts and then work backwards. So instead of looking mainly at the application for the present, we're going to be looking back into the past and trying to see whether we can trace God's heart for a diverse church right back to the beginning. So if you have a Bible and can turn to Acts chapter 13, that would be brilliant. I want to raise an uncomfortable question for us at the outset. So while we're turning to the Bible, I want to raise an uncomfortable question, which is this. Is a passion for a diverse church just a fad? Is that just a a thing that we do because we live here at this day in history, in this particular city? Is, Is that why we're getting into diversity? Is it just because it's become fashionable in the modern West, especially in very multi ethnic places like South London? Is it, is it just a worldly fashion, and we're now trying to go, oh, we must go back to the Bible and try and make the Bible or God fit our modern faddishness? Is that what's going on? Because you could ask that question. Advertising campaigns are always trying to show as much diversity as possible, and so are schools and TV shows and magazine articles and university admissions. Is, so is the church just jumping on a cultural bandwagon? I think some could even object that and say, oh, this is something the world is doing and you guys are trying to keep up with the world and that's why you're talking about diversity. Or is a diverse, multi-ethnic community something that has genuinely been part of God's plan from the very beginning, long before there was any such thing as a Western world that was trying to catch up? And is it, in fact, that the world is trying to catch up with God rather than the other way around? And I want to show you that God has been into diversity since long before any of us knew what the word meant. He has been into it since the very beginning of the story of God's people. And that when we have missed it as his people, as the church through history, as we often have, that is almost always because of sin. That actually, this is not something that God is undecided on. It's not something that God is ambiguous on. God is emphatic and clear that he wants all nations to be blessed through his people. And he wants an international, diverse, multi-ethnic, multicultural community of worshippers. And we've often missed it, but through our fault and not through his. Now that is not to say, I should just say before we read from the word, that's not to say that every church must be as racially diverse as every other. Because if you live in a village in rural Devon, or if you live in Zhengzhou in China, or if you live in rural Cameroon, the chances are that your church will not be as racially diverse as this church is. That's just because of your context. But but it is true that the church should aim to be as diverse as the community that it's serving. Which doesn't mean all churches will be as diverse as every other, but it does mean that God's heart for diversity will be worked out in every congregation that names the name of Jesus 
to greater or lesser extents, all of us reaching forward to try and achieve something that God has given us a vision for in his word. And so the way that we worship and lead and eat and do life together, we are to put the the boundary-breaking, forgiving, unifying love of God on display, just as Faria has shown us in that beautiful video. So let's read from Acts chapter 13. This is the church in Antioch. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now, something we should all know is that this prayer meeting is the reason why we are here. This prayer meeting is the re- If you are not ethnically Jewish, which most of us are not, this prayer meeting is why you and I are here. This is when mission to non-Gentile people in a deliberate, on-the-front-foot kind of way began with this prayer meeting, with a group of people gathering in some room of some sort in a Syrian city called Antioch in the late 1840s. This is when mission to people like us, non-Jewish people, began. But look at the diversity of the group of leaders that are already there in the mix ready to send out Barnabas and Saul and saying, go to Gentiles for us. We'll send our two best leaders, our most experienced pastors. You go and we'll support you. Look at the group of leaders that they had already in this church, in this city. You have Barnabas, who is a Jewish European. We know from elsewhere in Acts that he is from Cyprus. So he is a Jewish Cypriot man. We then have Simeon called Niger, almost certainly an African black man. We then have Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene is in northern Africa. He is himself also an African black man. We have Manaean, who is a member of Herod's court, so almost certainly a West Asian man and a Jew. And then we have Saul, who is a Jew from modern-day Turkey. So he's West Asian as well, and he spent a lot of his life in ministry in Europe. So in this Church, in this leadership team of this church, let alone the church as a whole, we have three Jewish guys, a European guy, two Asian guys, two black men. And this team is already very diverse. Now, a lot of cities are not as diverse as that, as as Antioch. Uh, Certainly in those days and, and still true now. So neither are the churches and neither are the leadership teams. But actually, if you consider the global church as a whole, that pattern of diverse leadership continues today. And has continued actually throughout church history. If you look at the church and say, where are the people? And where are they being, where are the key leaders? Where are they being drawn from? I mean, you go through the first few hundred years of the church and even, in fact, you can go through church history and say, who are our most influential pastors and theologians in the church? And you will find a whole lot of Africans, a whole lot of Asians, a whole lot of Europeans. And I'm sorry, if you are American here or Australian, please don't take offense in the fact that this list of people may not include you because we didn't know you. The most of the world didn't know you were there at the time, but please don't take any offense by that. But in terms of Asia, Europe, and Africa, we have an incredibly diverse group. Look at this. There's a number of people. I just want to use a meet, if you like, on, on the screen. So Africans, among the and many, many key African theologians and leaders, Oregon, Clement, Tertullian, 
Athanasius, many would say greatest theologian in the history of the Eastern Church. Augustine, pretty much everyone would say greatest theologian in the history of the Western Church. These five guys are all Africans. There's plenty of Asians as well. This is Ignatius of Antioch. This is Basil. This is Gregory Nazianzus. This is Gregory of Nyssa and John Chrysostom. The, the three, if you like, the three in the middle are called the Cappadocian Fathers, which is why they're pictured in the same picture. Then Europeans, like Ambrose, although he's called Ambrosius on this picture, which I know makes it look like he invented rice pudding. That's not why he's known. He was a bishop of Milan. Then Thomas Aquinas, who's an Italian guy. Martin Luther, who's a German guy. John Calvin, a French guy who lived his life in Switzerland. So we just got a hugely diverse group. Even if you just take some of the key leaders in the church's history, you'll find a very, very racially diverse group of individuals. Not only that, but if you take then the church, not just the leaders, but the church as a whole, it's a point I've made before, but the the global center of Christianity has moved throughout our history and is still moving. But what I mean by that is where, if you were to wait, all of the Christians in the world, where is their geographical center according to where they all live? And you'll see that if you look on this map, you'll see that the center has continually moved, beginning in Jerusalem and moving round and up and then down again, down in towards Africa. So now... Christianity increasingly centered in the majority world, in the global south. So why are things like that true? Why do we have this church in Antioch like this? Why this list of leading theologians? Why this moving center of Christianity? The reason is that God has always desired a diverse people from every tribe and nation. And everyone, everyone is invited to be part of his people. And at our best, the church have caught hold of that vision and pursued it with passion. The story of the people of God begins, if we go now right back to the start, begins with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. That's where we almost have to begin. The first 11 chapters of Genesis set up what the world is like before the arrival of Abraham. But for the rest of the Bible, Abraham's family are the focus. In Genesis 12, it begins, 12 verse 1, here's what God said to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you and in you... All the families of the earth will be blessed. So we are three verses into this story that begins in Genesis 12.1 and goes on for the rest of the Bible. Three verses in, and God has already promised a blessing for every family on earth. There is a choice of this particular man, but with a universal benefit. So one individual, one nation chosen for the blessing of all nations. In a sense, that global vision in you, every family, not even, it's more like our word clan. It's much, certainly much narrower, much smaller units than our word nation. It's not saying every country, 200 or so. This is saying every clan, every tribe, every family, everyone is invited. And it's, it's already been promised in the third verse of the start of Israel's story. That promise then gets restated to Isaac in Genesis 26. In your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. As we read through Genesis, what happens is we keep coming back to it. It's like you feel like you've thrown away the promise and it comes back like a boomerang and hits you again. People from other nations are being blessed through Abraham's family. So Abraham blesses Pharaoh and then Abimelech and then Joseph feeds Egypt. The nations of the earth are being blessed through Abraham's family. That's right there at the beginning of the story in Genesis. And then we move into Exodus, as Israel escapes from slavery in Egypt, we find a mixed 
multitude, that's the phrase that's used, a mixed multitude, a bunch of people from all kinds of other nations who get bundled into Israel as they flee from Pharaoh. So a massive number of Gentiles, people who aren't Jews, are included in God's people and receive all of their privileges. That's right in the story of the Exodus. I think the first person to be invited, if you like, say to a, the Jews go to a Gentile person and say, come and join us. I think the first person to whom that happens is Hobab, who is Moses' father-in-law. And Moses says to him, come with us and we will do you good. That is the first invitation I'm aware of where somebody is asked, hey, you're not a Jew, but if you come with us, we'll do you good. And then as Israel progresses into the land and they take up occupation of the land of Canaan, many more outsiders are added. And we're told these remarkable stories about them. Rahab the prostitute, who's a Canaanite. Ruth, the Moabite woman. A guy who almost no one has heard of called Obed-Edom, who is an Edomite. And uh, in other words, he's one of Israel's enemies. Um, But he is not only welcomed in the people of God, he has the ark of God where the house of God, the box which God lives in, in his house, dwelling in his home to such an extent that the people of God then look on and say, we must go and get the ark because it's blessing him. Maybe God also wants to bless us. And this guy who's a Gentile, not only is allowed to host the presence of God, he then joins the people of God as a priest and a Levite. They are treated as members of, all na- uh, members of Israel. And so all nations, we've got lots and lots of individuals who are being brought into the people of God, right from the start of the story. Now that's less familiar material for many of us, but as the, with the arrival of Jesus, we find actually his focus is mostly on Israel, not on the people outside, not on inviting people like you and me, at least initially. He keeps bursting out in compassion towards Gentiles like us, but actually he's primarily focused in his mission towards Israel. But even as he is, he keeps getting stopped and interrupted by people saying, teacher, would you come here with us? Would you come and do this? So he gets stopped by a centurion and he says, yes, I will heal your servant. He goes into a land where there are pigs being herded, which means you know it's not Jewish. And he ends up bringing liberation to, an, to a demonized man. And in a famous and bizarre story, the pigs just charge off the edge of a cliff and all drown. It's a weird story in a way, but what it does show is Jesus goes into dark Gentile areas and liberates people. He's not just here for the Jews. There's a Canaanite woman who begs Jesus, hey, would you please bring healing? And Jesus says, what? I'm, I'm, here, for, I'm here for Israel. And you're not supposed to take the bread from the children and give it to the dogs? Which is kind of... He's, playing around, messing, messing around with her, making a bit of a joke, she says to him, yeah, but the dogs get to eat the crumbs that fall from the children's table. And he says, great is your faith, your daughter will be healed. And so she is. And we find lots of stories like this where Jesus is encountering people who are not part of God's people, and he's inviting them in, or he's welcoming them in. And we have lots of stories to that effect as well. We have a story about lots of workers in a vineyard. Who You get people who've been working there, if you like, they've been out in the sun all day, and then you get some people who've only just arrived. And the people who've only just arrived get paid uh, a full wage for the day, and everybody else thinks, oh, well, we've been here for ages, we'll get more. But then when it comes to it, they don't get more, and they grumble. And the master says, I think probably what he's doing here is he's speaking to Israel and saying, the fact that these Gentiles have been allowed in and given the same privileges as you shouldn't bother you because you should just rejoice that I'm generous and it's mine to give. 
It's a story really about the inclusion of the Gentiles. Jesus is continually inviting and including the wrong people. Levi, the tax collector, Zacchaeus, Mary Magdalene, people who are not the people you're supposed to associate with. Many will come, he says, from east and west and north and south and take their places at the feast in the kingdom. Jesus gets angry in the temple because it's supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. And so he goes in and he sees these people trading in such a way that limits people. And he says, this is not what the temple was supposed to be. It was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. That's one of the things that makes him angry about it. He tells stories about God's vineyard being taken away from Israel's leaders and given to people who will actually produce fruit. He talks about a banquet in which everyone is invited, and then when some people turn the invitation down, again, I think that's many of the Jews at the time, he says, go out into the highways and the hedges and invite everybody. I want my banquet to be full. Go, 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 and tell them all to come in. When he dies, the first person to see him for who he truly is is a Roman centurion who has presumably been overseeing his execution, who says, surely this man was the Son of God, a Gentile, a non-Jew. Everyone is invited. And he concludes his ministry on a mountainside, saying to his disciples, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. So I wanted to summarize all of that so we can see this is... this again and again comes through in the scriptures that God's purposes for his people are that everyone would be invited, that actually Gentiles from all kinds of backgrounds would be included in his family. Having said all of which, we don't really have diversity yet. Here's what I mean by that. Diversity is what happens when you have many all expressing their manyness and then becoming, but still becoming one. And what you have up until the book of Acts is you don't really have diversity. What you have is Gentiles being told, you can join God's people, but you need to become like them. You need to be circumcised. You need to take on their food laws and their observances. You need to be a convert to Judaism in order to be able to be part of God's family. Until the gift of the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, being part of God's people means imitating them. You can come with us if you become like us. That's not diversity. That's deference. Right? That's conformity. Gentiles can worship God if they become the same as Jews. That's what Paul, by the way, in Galatians, is so angry about, actually. It's the fact that people are still functioning as if that's true. But in Acts, what we start to see is diversity. We start to see both one and many. Oneness and manyness. One piece of music, many voices singing in harmony. One table, many styles of cuisine. One God, one faith, one baptism. Many styles, many cultures, many languages and histories. If you have one and you don't have many, that's conformity. That's like hundreds of people all playing the same tune on the recorder. If you have one without many, that's what you have. It's conformity. If you have many without one, lots of different voices and there's no oneness, that's cacophony. That's like the kind of racket that happens if you're in the kids' work and you hand out instruments to all the children. And they're like... And it just sounds horrendous. That's not diversity either. But if you have one and many, 
people preserving the manyness at the same time as taking on a new oneness in Jesus, you have a symphony. You have harmony. You have diversity. You have like an orchestra, all playing different sounds, different instruments, different notes, but with the same overarching piece of music, all fusing together to make a sound far more beautiful than any of them could make on their own. And that's what we begin to see in the book of Acts. We see some of the many, as well as the one, and sometimes they collide. Sometimes the presence of manyness collides with the presence of oneness. Diversity is difficult, as we've seen already in this series and will continue to see in the life of the church, I'm sure. The church has to figure out what to do about it. The church has to figure out what are we going to do about this injustice we can see between the Greek-speaking and the Hebrew-speaking widows in the distribution of food. That happens in Acts chapter 6. What are we going to, how are we going to figure out that diversity problem? What are we going to do about the fact that these people are now in our church and they haven't been circumcised? What are we going to do about them? But the Holy Spirit has come upon them anyway. How does that work? What now? We have to start thinking through things like, how do we handle meals? This, this person eats pork, which I find disgusting, and I have found disgusting my entire life, dating right the way back to my father Moses, and here he is, sitting in the church, eating pork alongside me. Should we eat separately then? What do we do about this? And as they begin to dig into some of these issues, which we'll explore through this series, they have to tackle their prejudices and their preferences. But, and this is crucial, literally crucial, they do this in the light of the cross, They do this in light of the fact that actually all of them are sinners. All of them have had Jesus' blood shed for them. All All of them have been forgiven. And God has reconciled them to God. And as a result, they are now empowered to be reconciled to each other. That's the logic underlying Paul in Ephesians. If you read Ephesians 2, Ephesians 3, Paul's passion is, look, God has reconciled you to God vertically, if you like. So it is then for us to figure out how we express that in the context of us being reconciled to each other, horizontally. This reconciliation is based on that one. They remain many. They're still distinct. They still have their cultures and backgrounds, but they have become one in Jesus Christ. And that is what God has been shooting for ever since the beginning. Ephesians chapter 3, Paul puts it this way. He says, It was his, God's, intention that now, through the church, the manifold or multicolored wisdom of God would be made known. It was God's intention that the the powers, the principalities and powers, would look at the church and they would see this diversity at work with Jew and Gentile and male and female and black and white and slave and free and barbarian and Scythian and all of them in the same melting pot, And the principalities and powers would look at the church and say, how in the world did that happen? God must be so wise. That was his intention, that through the church, the multicolored wisdom of God would be known to the powers. So the world even would look in and say, that's impossible. You can't create a people as united as that, from as diverse backgrounds as that. And it's only in the wisdom of God, in in and through the foolishness of the cross, that anything like that is remotely thinkable. God wanted a community in which we could have unity without uniformity, in which we could have diversity without division. No male or female, no Jew or Gentile, no barbarian, Syrian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. And that has been the story all along. 
millenni- thousands of years before modern multiculturalism became a thing. Centuries before most of the nations represented here even knew that the other nations represented here even existed. That story of one and many runs through the entire Bible. Right? The people of God, I like this, this analogy, I hope it might help you. The people of God in a way is like the Amazon River. Okay? The Amazon River, if you were to go, I haven't been, but if you were to go to its source, you'd find up in the mountains in Peru, there's, there's this little trickle of water. And people would say, well, that's the Amazon. That's the start of the Amazon. It's like right at the beginning of the story of Abraham where you have this, this old man and his old woman wife. And they don't have any kids. And God says, you are going to bless all the nations. But this trickle of people just looks tiny. It looks monumentally unimpressive. And everyone would say, what? You, that's the Amazon river? It's like somebody speaking to this little stream in the Peruvian mountains and saying, in you... All of South America is going to get water. And you would look at it and think, what are you talking about? That is totally inadequate to water South America. But you see, as it begins to wind its way through the book of Genesis, you see it still tiny, but a little bit larger, a little bit more noticeable, but still something you could jump over. And as time goes on, it begins to grow to the point where you couldn't jump over it or couldn't even necessarily walk over it, but you might have to swim or take a boat. So in the uplands, as it's coming from Peru down towards Brazil, it begins to grow a bit in size and starts to shape the landscape around it. And that's what Israel does. Israel begins just a few people, and then it's like 70 by the end of Genesis, but it, it gets to a size eventually where you begin to notice it and say, this is having an impact on the world around it, but there's still no way this could water the whole continent. This isn't that scale. This just isn't that kind of a thing. But as the Amazon reaches the Brazilian rainforest, something happens. If you like, the ministry of Jesus kicks in. The book of Acts happens. The spirit falls on the community. And what you find is that quite rapidly, a large number of other rivers begin to feed in to this one river. So you have the Amazon. You can still identify its shape right back to Peru. But you begin to see these other rivers called tributaries begin to flow into it from all sorts of directions. That's what happens in the book of Acts in the gospel. So other nations, not just Jews anymore, but Gentile nations, people from England or Ghana or India or Ecuador or whatever are beginning to be joined into the people of God and they start fusing in and what happens of course is very quickly the people of God expands dramatically and becomes much larger and much more influential and much more powerful and more and more tributaries start coming in and it's still going on today you find new nations or new people groups that are joining the river of God's purposes When they do, of course, they do not remain, if you like, a fixed point saying, oh, well, of course, I go back to, I trace my lineage back to this nation or that nation. They take on, if you like, the new identity of God's people while retaining their history. And so do we. We begin to join God's people. We're still who we have come from. And yet we become one in our manyness as we start flowing out towards the sea. And by the time the Amazon River hits the Atlantic, I love this prophetic picture of the people of God. By the time the Amazon hits the Atlantic, it is carrying more water than the next 10 biggest rivers in the world combined. It's got 10% of all the world's fresh water. And it is so powerful and mighty and fresh that it turns the salty ocean fresh up to 200 miles out to sea. And that's what John saw about the church when he says, And I looked 
And I saw before me a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and tribe and tongue and people and language standing before the throne and crying out before the Lamb. That's what he saw. He saw one people that was nevertheless many. He saw many that had become one. He saw a diverse river of the people of God. And the thing I love about that illustration is this. It just reminds us what we probably, some of us, need to be reminded of sometimes. We are all outsiders in God's people, in a sense. It's not a question, friends, of kind of white people saying, oh, we want to welcome black people into the church, or black people saying, we want to welcome white people into the church. In a sense, of course, we all do that, but in a sense, we are all outsiders who have been welcomed in by somebody else. None of us get to make the rules as to who's allowed in and who's allowed out and on what terms. It is Jesus who has allowed all of us in and said to you and you and you and all of these tributaries, come in. I want all of you in my banquet. Many will come from east and west and north and south. It's his rules. It's his house. It's his table. And everyone, everyone is invited. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your desire to have a diverse people. We thank you so much for including us, for inviting us in and allowing us to participate joyfully in this incredible plan. And we pray that as we seek to live out this astonishing vision that is well beyond our power, that you would give us your spirit, you would give us help in, in and through the power of the cross to bring peace and reconciliation and harmony and beauty in everything we do together as a community. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.